Welcome to Mad Influence. Before we start today, I want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening recently. And if you do enjoy the episodes, if you could rate the podcasts on Apple Podcasts, I would be really grateful. I know that all podcasts say this, but it genuinely will make a difference to how many people can find it. And it only takes a second. So if you can leave a rating, I would really appreciate it. This is a podcast about how the marketing industry uses its influence on society. We all know that marketers can have a bad rep. Let's be honest, we're one of the least trusted professions in the world, ranking somewhere alongside politicians and journalists at the bottom of every poll from the last few years. But what about the people who use their positions of influence to spread positive messages, entertain the world or inspire social change? I'm Helen Saul, I work in brand marketing, and I'm hosting this podcast so that I can speak to some of these people about our role in influencing culture and investigate how we can all use our power more for good. Today's guest is Kat Gordon, entrepreneur, advertising expert, and founder of the 3% Movement, which she set up in 2012 to tackle the shortage of female creative directors in the ad industry. Kat experienced this firsthand after working in various advertising roles ranging from copywriting for companies like Cosmopolitan and Sports Illustrated to owning her own ad agency for seven years. Kat dedicates much of her time today to spreading her movement's message to new communities like TEDx Women, Cannes and Creative Week. She has helped increase the percentage of female creative directors in the US from 3% to 29% and inspired agencies to create a roadmap to continue with this progress. It is no surprise that Kat has been nominated for many accolades, including being selected as one of LinkedIn's top voices, as well as being named in the top 10 women to watch by advertising age early on in her career. Kat is currently writing a book, running an engaged online community and projects like Super Bowl Tweet Up, which has been contributing commentary on the best and worst Super Bowl ads for almost a decade. Kat is not just passionate about the representation of women in the ad world. She also wants to make sure that other underrepresented communities are being involved in creating ads. In her own words, the biggest opportunity to drive meaningful change is having diverse creative leadership at the very top. Cultures of belonging where people want to stay and contribute at the highest levels can't be manufactured. They're a byproduct of leadership that reflects many different types of creators. This is how change happens. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Kat. I am really grateful for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Me too. And we should probably also mention just to contextualize that we actually got in touch because a previous guest of Mad Influence, Jean Kilborn, put us in touch. So a big thank you to her as well. The way I think I'd like to start today is I normally kind of go back a little bit to a guest's background. And actually, when I was researching you, I found a couple of small similarities. I saw that you studied English and French and that you lived in Paris, which I also lived in Paris during my studies and then moved back for work as well. And I find this interesting just from the perspective of, personally, I often think that there is a link between languages and creativity. And also I believe that if you live abroad or work abroad, you often tend to be a person that is open. And I think because you've been in a situation where you might be a bit uncomfortable or you know, an outsider, I think that kind of makes you more aware of inclusion in the world and I wondered if you think that there's a correlation there too. 
A hundred percent. We've actually talked about that at the 3% conference that there are certain agencies, I think Havas is one that has an opportunity for its people to do almost a mini study abroad within the company and to blog about it. And I completely concur with what you said that, you know, so much of what belonging is about is figuring out who is centered and who is an afterthought. And when you're living overseas and you're the new kid and you don't speak the language or you're learning the language, you're not centered. Someone else is centered. And that is a very healthy exercise for all of us to go through is not being the centered group and figuring out how to create a sense of belonging within that. Absolutely. I really agree. And I was thinking a lot about obviously what you're doing today within the 3% movement and you know I don't want to dwell too much on what it is in terms of all that you've done already because I think people already have that from the introduction and I know you talk about it a lot so maybe the focus of where I'd really like to understand from you is about the positive impact that you are delivering on the world and when I've seen you talk about it online I feel like you just radiate so much energy when you talk about the conferences and the events that you run. So I wondered if you could talk about some of the positive effects that your movement is giving. Yeah, thanks for that. And I appreciate you kind of sensing my energy. I, you know, on the Enneagram, I'm the number seven, the enthusiastic visionary. So I'm just naturally lit up about things. I'm a very optimistic person. And I'm always asking what could be and what if and very hopeful. And so I think the most hopeful thing that the 3% movement has done is rather than dictate diversity from some kind of mandate, we basically allow people to draw their own conclusions by stepping into our events or our community where it's an incredibly diverse group of creatives. And it's just an amazing experience people have. They feel that they're vibrating differently at our events. They go back to their own office environment and think, I want it to feel here the way it felt at 3%. And it's communication through demonstration. It's showing the world the way it should look like and is slowly waking up to becoming and having people realize that they feel happier and less defended and more creative and those are feelings that are universal. No matter where you come from, people want to feel those feelings. And so when you have them in abundance, you get curious around, what am I responding to here? And then you try to reverse engineer it back into your own world. And that's that's really what we're about. Absolutely. And I, I think it kind of comes through. It comes through in everything you do. I, one thing I do wonder, though, is in terms of your movement or anything. So I'll take an example from my own podcast is I think that the people that listen to it probably already naturally have a bit of an interest in making a positive impact. I think probably a lot of these people that are like really vibing off what you're saying and really feeling really enthusiastic probably have a natural dispensation to engage with this subject matter. And I wondered, do you ever have to think about the people that actually maybe aren't ready for that yet, or maybe it isn't what they naturally think? Is there a way that you can kind of include these people as well? Yeah, I feel like that's the $10 million question that I think a lot about is how do you reach people who are not awake yet to their own contributions that might be stymied through some of the systems that are in place, but they just accept it as the status quo. 
um, or they don't think anything's broken, or they're uncomfortable with rapid change. And everyone's on their own journey. And I think it's important to have a movement where anyone can enter at any level of readiness. And a good example, you know, in the very first year that 3% launched, you know, here we're all about gender equality. And men were always a part of that movement as speakers, as attendees. And certain people felt that that was not appropriate. You know, like, why would you spotlight men at all? And I'm so glad that my instinct then and even more so now is gender does not equal female. Gender equals all sorts of, you know, presentations and self-identities. And the more inclusive you are of everyone, the more the true value of diversity is realized. And so there are times where I feel like I'm walking into meetings where I'm the most needed and maybe the least welcome. And that's not always the most fun meeting to walk into, but you can't only be speaking to the converted and the people that are already awake. You have to be speaking to people because you never know what one thing or idea or phrase you might leave someone with that can unlock a block in their own thinking. And it takes multiple exposures before I think people realize. I mean, I just listened to this great Adam Grant podcast interview he gave where he talked about how people kind of double down on their own mistakes because they're too afraid to admit that they ever thought something that could be wrong. And I love the way he reframed that. He said, why should people be ashamed to look back at a way they used to think or some choices they made in the past and think, how could I have been so stupid or how could I have not seen that? When in reality, what you're witnessing is your own evolution. It, only through growth will you look back and see a difference. And that that should be a source of pride. You know, oh, I'm growing. That's the whole human experiment. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're talking about it in the context of people, but really we could apply the same thinking to brands and wider organisations. And we're actually going to release this episode. It's going to uh, come out on International Women's Day to kind of mark the day. And when we're talking about it in that context, what do you think are the ways that brands can really make a, a difference in terms of making an impact on inclusion whether that is in the context of gender diversity but you know the, the conversation is much wider than that and I wondered if you could kind of outline some of the things that brands can really do at the moment. I mean 3% did a standalone event in Washington DC about a year and a half ago called the rise of brand purpose and the whole day was around this exact subject like how can brands show up and stand for something where there's a kind of a, a vacuum right now uh, and a need for consumers to feel like they can trust someone. I know um, when you introduced your podcast, you talked about the amount of distrust that marketers face, but that is changing. Consumers are actually looking to marketers to fill the void that often government is not filling in terms of you know, these are just big groups of people that are employed by a company that have a lot of money and influence. And consumers are looking for brands that align with their values and want to give their money to them. In a sense, they're buying their own values. And so I think the healthiest way for brands to show up in, in these moments in corporate social responsibility is to take a very long lens look at the commitment to not have it be like, oh, we're doing such and such for International Women's Day or, oh, we're doing such and such for Black History Month. It's what would it look like if you lived those values every day of the year throughout your supply chain, throughout all of your partnerships, 
and to really almost do an inventory of how do you do business? Do you have pay equity? <laughs> what does your C-suite look like? Who do you partner with? All of these things are subtle ways that consumers are looking to brands to say like, who are you? They're not just buying a thing, they're buying a belief system and they're buying into your values. And that is so different than when I started as a copywriter years and years ago. You just talked about features and benefits, features and benefits. You never got into anything political or anything around values. That is completely changed. And consumers are actually wondering, what does this brand stand for? And if they make a statement, is it backed up by their very own actions and the composition of their teams and all of these things that people can ascertain through a Google search or a look at your website? So it's it's figuring out what you want to stand for, making a long-term commitment and ensuring it's infused in all of the touch points. And you might not get there immediately, but to have goals for how you're going to get there within a reasonable amount of time. Because if we wait for everyone to be perfect, to be able to stand for something or to speak out about something, it's gonna be very quiet and we don't have that kind of time. And so, you know, you have to be bold now, but back it up with a plan to really be, to have it be defensive I think those are all really important points and especially when you're talking about the impact that you can make within an organization and how you can change the entire structure of a place and also when you're talking about like tangible things that a company can do things like pay equity and one thing that I'd be interested to know is I know that you're previous background was some agency experience and something that I've certainly noticed in my marketing career is that there seems to be a tangible difference between if you work client side or agency side and client side tends to pay substantially more money than agency side and I've had a look at the stats and it seems to be similar sort of situation in the US as well and I wondered do you think that there's a correlation there with maybe if they're paying less it means that you can only afford to go into these positions if you're from a more financially secure background in the first place. And is that something that we should look at? I think, of course, you don't want to only attract one kind of pedigree of person. And I always try when talking about the subject matter to go on record to say, I did not go to portfolio school. I did not spend lots of money and years of my life learning to be a copywriter. I took night classes at the School of Visual Arts in New York City in copywriting while I was working a job right out of college. So it's important for any kind of creator, even someone that hasn't gone to college, to be able to find an on-ramp into advertising. Um, creativity does not always need a four-year degree behind it or a portfolio school degree behind it. Um, the client side question is an interesting one. And I actually feel like when I see brands asking their agency partners to be more diverse, and that's a very healthy pressure point to touch on to make change, they rarely turn the mirror on themselves and look at how do we treat our agency partners? What kind of turnaround times do we demand of our agency partners? What kind of margins are we allowing them to make off of the engagement with us, all of these things are often unwittingly ensuring that only one kind of person can service your account. And that's not the diversity you're seeking. So you have to look at the whole ecosystem. I mean, even things when we did our elephant on Madison Avenue research around sexual harassment, one of the facts that really jumped out at me was that a lot of the women that experienced aggressions or sexual harassment 
It was at the hands of a client. And so you look at what is the code of conduct within a brand around how their people need to behave, should behave. I mean, it's ridiculous. We have to mandate this, how you know respectful adults should behave with all of the people in their ecosystem on behalf of that brand. Does it extend to their your agency partners and other vendors? So all of these questions need to be answered. And I think the one thing that client side doesn't have that agency life does as a creative person is variety. You know, when you work at a brand, you're talking about that brand every day of the year, 24 seven. The upside is you know it inside out, but the whole reason that ad agencies were invented in the first place was that brands were too close to themselves to understand, to have a healthy distance around, does anyone care about that? Like, how can you talk about that to someone that isn't living and breathing this brand? And so when you work in house, I think there's the danger of, just getting so caught up in the messaging that you embrace and not having the variety of creative clients that keeps creative people inspired. I mean, that was my favorite thing about working in agencies was I worked on multiple clients and I got to know different kinds of business problems. And that just, you know, was very enlivening for my creative spirit. And so that won't change anytime soon. I really agree with a lot of what you said and also you gave me some uh, pause for thought as well. So in terms of what you were just saying, I, I literally just had this conversation on a recent episode with someone who he owns his own research agency for Gen Z. And I was saying to him that I find as someone that has worked client side that brands often have this tendency where they kind of they love to believe their own hype. <laughs> and it's important from the perspective that you really have to advocate for your brand and believe in it and understand it. But at the same time, when you do this, you sometimes lose sense of the bigger picture and what people are really thinking outside of there. So really agree with that point you made. I think you made an excellent point around as clients, we have to think about what our relationship is with our agency and are we putting almost like too much time and pressure and these things on them and therefore not allowing them enough room to think about their diversity as well. And that's maybe something I'd not fully thought about in depth before. So thank you for explaining that. And I guess just wider around that point that we were talking about, I'd love to know your thoughts on seeking feedback outside of your view and the fact that you have a view which kind of centers around something that's like like really positive around creativity and agencies you know my experiences are from client side and I wondered do you actively yourself look for feedback and experiences from people sort of outside of your range yeah I think that's a great question and an important you know, as we're able to fine tune all of our content channels and set up preferences and alerts and, you know, it can become an echo chamber of just our own way of thinking over and over again. And that whole confirmation bias, I'm right. I knew I was right. And this proves I'm right. And so it is important to sometimes listening or often to listen to people. Again, that, the you know, living in Paris and not being a Parisian, it's that same thing. You want to not be a Parisian um, every once in a while through what you read or expose yourself to or the movies you watch and just keep new viewpoints coming in because you'll never know if you've evolved if you never hear something that you can suddenly think, I don't think I believe that any longer, uh, which is the sign of healthy growth. So I love that you are awake to that. And it's important. And it's it requires a little bit of discipline because if you just go about your day and log into the same channels you always do and talk to the same people, 
you can get down that rabbit hole of sameness and sameness is bad even if it's on the good side. Absolutely. And when we're talking about evolution, there's the type that you actively seek, which is kind of what we're talking about here. And then there's the type where the world around you changes and you have to evolve. And, you know, the big example of that is everything that has happened over the past year to do with coronavirus, the pandemic. And I wondered what evolutions, what changes have you had to make within the work that you do as a result of this? Mm. You know, the pandemic has been such an interesting catalyst for so many of the things that the 3% movement has been beating our drum around for years, remote working, support for caregiving. All of these things are laid bare um, through the pandemic where it's this incredible experiment, sadly with some real death and destruction in its wake, but where we're all experiencing the same limitations at once. And we're realizing, oh, we can do work remotely. Oh, you know, not having good support for caregiving has horrible consequences on both children and teachers and parents. And so it's almost become this spotlight onto things that were already broken, but where no one can deny it any longer. I mean, you're on a Zoom call and you're seeing your colleague try to manage his or her life with small children in a home where maybe they it's not set up for a home office and all of a sudden i mean i i was walking through my neighborhood recently and saw this woman she'd set her desk up on the driveway of her home she was literally conducting business on her driveway it was such a sight almost like a garage sale but she was doing her work and i realized probably inside of her home all of the other spaces that were quiet were spoken for, you know, whether her kids were Zooming for school or like, those are the moments that stop you. You're like, wow, okay, this is, we are separated from complete chaos by a very, very delicate thread. And so it enables people to have conversations and hopefully leapfrog through changes in terms of how you allow people to work, where you allow people to work, mental health conversations really on the uptick, which is so overdue. We're all struggling. No one is living their best life right now. You're like we're all surviving. And those are my thoughts. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think what you're kind of talking about there, there's the positive nature of remote work and the things that it's enabled to do and connect to us. But then also when you mention that example of the woman that's kind of working from outside of her house on a drive, it kind of makes me think about the real difficulties that it's caused some people. And I think there can be a tendency sometimes to focus so much on all of the great things that remote work allows us to do. And I can certainly cite loads of things, but I think it's important as well to acknowledge the problems that it has also caused for people that might not be in as privileged a position. Maybe they don't have a home that's set up for that. And I wondered if that's something that you've seen a lot of in the past year. Yes. And I think another group that I have a lot of concern for are the younger workers that maybe are living in smaller apartments, maybe with a shared space with a roommate. Going into the office had been their experience of having some creature comforts around their work environment that now that they're stripped of. Yet, if you're, you know, a CEO or an upper level worker, you have an incredible home, you might have multiple homes, you're able to adapt quickly and comfortably to this new world of work. And so 
these two people employed by the very same company, maybe one is a 25-year-old worker and one is a 50-year-old worker, they're having a dramatically different experience of work from home. And that needs to be honored. And so I think, and separate from that, you also think about how people are wired, you know, like neurodiversity, like introverts versus extroverts and people that thrive off of the energy of others and others that really crave solitude and quiet to do their best work. And all of these things are valid and, and they're not binary. It's not like if you're an introvert, you only want to work from home. I mean, it's, it's about creating and fashioning a system that allows you to do your best work and feel in touch with the most gratifying experience of a workplace. And so I love the idea of companies not setting up a hard and fast rule like we will do it this way or we will allow you to do it this way this many times. But the really progressive companies will say we will allow you to determine as the grown up you are how you make your greatest contributions and where you want to make them from and then figure out on the back end, how are you going to enable that workforce to work for everyone? And so these questions are just in their infancy. And I'm really excited to watch how different companies address this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can already see, you know, there's some companies, I think Spotify was one recently that it says it's going to have like a work from anywhere policy, which is not just any building, but also any place like literally worldwide. And is that something as well that you think we should be promoting in terms of trying to get our employees to sort of work all over the world because of the effects that it can have again on tying back in with this question around inclusion around making people sort of more open to different ideas and adapting yes i mean i feel like the potential benefit of that to diversity especially is huge there are certain cities in the us that just are not as accepting of or progressive around diversity. And yet companies that are headquartered there that want diversity have a difficult time attracting people to move there. And so what if you could actually create a work from anywhere environment where creatives and or creators or contributors of any kind can decide where do they feel at home? Where Because whenever you're in an environment where your defenses are at their lowest, that is where you are going to make your greatest contributions. I mean, creativity is a vulnerable act. And the the less you can be covering or code switching or camouflaging a part of who you are, the greater your contributions. And so if, if that's from living in your hometown in Texas with your extended family, great. If that's you want to be in the big city where the company's headquartered, great. Um, if the economics of running your household are such that you can't afford to live in the city where the company is headquartered and meet all your family demands, great. You shouldn't have to make that Sophie's choice. And so this is a huge boom for companies to get a more diverse workplace that is going to be happier working because they're not having to shape shift and try to fit in to an environment where they wouldn't have chosen this as their hometown. The upside of that is going to be enormous. Absolutely. And also, it just kind of reminded me because we're talking about how the impact can be positive in terms of getting a more diverse workforce working on creativity and all of those things. It reminded me of the work that I was going to say you've done recently, but the reality is you've been doing it for 10 years. Every year you tweet during the Super Bowl. And the reason why I find that this is particularly interesting is because you've picked an event which in 
US culture is a really huge thing that everybody is attached to, whether they have interest in this topic that we're discussing today or not. And you have some discussions about how the adverts have been made, i.e. who's involved in directing these adverts. And then you also not only have your own discussion about how they're doing, but you encourage other people to do that as well. And I wondered if you could explain why that's so important to have and just how you've enjoyed doing it over these past 10 years. That is, you know, one of the traditions of 3% that I have the most fun with. So as a little bit of historical reference, even before 3% was a thing, I was live tweeting about the ads on Super Bowl Sunday because I'm interested and I love Twitter and I'm not a huge football fan per se, but you know that this is the biggest advertising spend day of the year in America. It's also one of the few things that people watch in real time. They don't record it and watch it later. So the chatter around what's happening is real time at scale. And I just found it a, a great mechanism to remind the world that women watch football, women buy every single product being advertised often more than men do or influence the, the spending on cars and travel and all the other categories represented. And we're watching and often we're dismayed at the story arc, you know, who's the protagonist, who has the speaking role, who's cast to your point around diversity. Is it always just a bunch of white people in the ad? And it's been remarkable to see how fast that has changed the way brands are showing up in their advertisements on Super Bowl Sunday, because in the beginning of the Super Bowl tweet up, uh, and, and like you said, anyone can follow along with our hashtag, and we have creatives logging in from all over the world and weighing in about what they're seeing, the ads at the beginning were egregious. I mean, the way women were depicted, it's, you know, Super Bowl is right before Valentine's Day. And so there would always be these incredibly offensive ads for like flowers and lingerie that were kind of like give and you'll get. I mean, it was that kind of blatant. And just the simple act of talking back in real time and tagging the brand and tagging the ad agency that made the work, which 3% provides a scorecard where you can pick up the handles of those companies and connect them to the work you're seeing. That is the ultimate secret weapon because brands don't want to have egg on their face in real time, you know, when they've spent millions and millions of dollars on this piece of communication. And it's also an opportunity for them to experience brand love. I mean, when, when an ad comes out, that's beautifully inclusive and has a great message and maybe some really spot on humor and they get tons of love for it through communities like 3%, that's a source of pride. And so, yeah, that's one of my most fun, I think being a copywriter, I think in tweets. So it's just my natural form of expression. Absolutely. And I was wondering when you do speak about brands that could do better, have you ever had brands that come to your movement and ask for advice or like ways that they can improve in the future? You know, we have heard back from brands that we have loved upon with a lot of gratitude. And then there have been some brands like I'm not going to name exactly what there was one brand that we kind of took to the mat and I ended up meeting the agency head in Cannes at the advertising festival on a party on a beach. And I brought it up to him and we had a really amazing conversation like he he realized you know, the era of their ways and the, 
you know, how they had alienated a huge part of their consumer base. And they ended up becoming very involved in the 3% movement. And so sometimes those can be flashpoints that are super positive where a brand can realize, oh, there's an opportunity to do better and to not be defensive around that and to apologize if you need to. I mean, truthfully, since the early years of the tweet up, things have become so much better, I think, as a result of these conversations that most of the tweets you'll see on the Super Bowl tweet up are positive. They're giving kudos to brands that have done either a story arc that's really nuanced and inclusive or casting that or musical choice. I mean, all sorts of facets of the production of a Super Bowl spot in real time from women that are that create media. It's a it's a powerful endorsement for doing it right. Absolutely. And I'm conscious that we don't have loads of time left. So I always tend to finish on the same couple of questions. And the first one that I like to ask is around favorite adverts of the past year. I know that you obviously talk about this a lot online, but I just wondered if you could just pick one advert over the past year that you think has actually done a really good job. Do you think you could do that? <laughs> um, yes, there's one advert. It's an ad that BBDO did, and it was for a women's reproductive health company. Oh, you... was it? Was it body form? Yes. Maybe we can add it in the notes and the show notes. And I, because I want to make sure the right people get the credit. Essentially, it's a long form piece of content. I don't know if it ran beyond YouTube, but it just, you know, went viral. It's so, it's almost hard to describe what it's about. It's a look inside a woman's body reproductively. And it, it's inclusive of every kind of experience from getting your first period to trying to get pregnant, to losing a pregnancy, to giving birth, by the way, including all kinds of, you know, lesbian couples, and it's not presupposing one direction, um, to menopause. And yet it's done almost like a piece of theater. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It's animated and it's so unbelievably inclusive and accurate and poignant and it makes you feel every feeling imaginable and not only did i watch it and feel like wow somebody like there's so much respect for the female body in that piece of work but i also thought about the men that would see that and how enlightening it must be to just the the female body and everything it goes through in like menstruating every month and trying to have a pregnancy and then giving birth. And I thought that was one of the most exceptional pieces of, of advertising I've seen in, in years. Um, and yeah, that, I mean, watch that, that to me is just a masterclass in what if thinking, like, what if we just celebrated the whole experience of womanhood, but without any kind of there's, they don't sanitize it. They don't sugarcoat it. It's so beautiful. Absolutely. No, I really agree. And uh, there's a couple of other guests, actually, that I think have mentioned that ad because of the reasons that you've said. So great pick. Um, final couple of questions are, well, firstly, I'd just like to know in terms of, I like to ask about the future and your plans. And I think I read that you're writing a book. So I wondered, yeah, what have you got in store? Yeah, I've been working, I actually was working on the book proposal right when COVID hit. And you would think, oh, great, then you finished your book, didn't you, Kat? No, oddly, I think this last year, it's been hard to be generative for a lot of people because of just living in a constant state of kind of low level anxiety and fear. Um, but the book is called The Future Belongs to Belonging. Uh, and the subtitle is 
how inclusive cultures unlock world-changing creativity. And essentially, it's about what I've witnessed over the last 10 years of running the 3% movement is that whenever we talk about the future, it's always about technology or AI or space travel and all these very futuristic things. And I have a very different belief system that it's actually the thing that is going to unlock the most incredible innovation of our future is a very ancient premise, which is belonging, is the idea of we are social mammals. We need to feel connected and safe in order to create at the highest levels. We are at the infancy of allowing that to be true in corporate culture. And the more that companies focus on their culture and inclusivity and true belonging, um, that is when they're going to unlock incredible innovations. And, and the world is broken in so many ways that we need all of the minds ideating around how to improve it. So working on that book, I've been giving talks on that subject um, to a variety of companies. And it's my favorite part is always the Q&A, because I love to hear how different people are moved by that message and how it connects to a story in their own background or an experience they're living through in real time. Uh, 3% is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year, and we are cautiously planning for an in real life event the first week of November. Yes, COVID hopefully in Atlanta, um, and it called a decade of difference. So we'll be looking at the past 10 years and celebrating some incredible advancements that have happened since the first 3% conference. And it is important to celebrate progress and to have a sense of community and almost a reunion, but then also setting the table for the next decade, because what is going to be needed to drive change forward is is changing or our vision is becoming clear i'm starting to see the writing on the wall about a very different kind of creative leader that is needed to meet this moment and it's unlike the training i received to become a creative leader and i've got some plans in place for how i want to almost incubate that idea and then bring it out to agencies so that they can get their teams ready to infuse belonging throughout the entire creative process, which does not happen currently. I think that all sounds really exciting. And when we're talking about the future creative leader, it also ties in with my final question, which is just what advice would you give to someone who's just starting their career in marketing today, if you could tell them anything? Mm. Be a sponge, you know, I think I, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly listening to podcasts. I also love hearing people talk from industries that I've never interacted with and just hearing what are the problems that exist in that industry. I had a really interesting call the other day with a woman that's in the world of philanthropy and what she sees as broken in that world and how it needs to change. And so just become constantly curious about the world and don't think about yourself as and this is something that I learned. I remember I read this book called The Ten Faces of Innovation. It's by the IDEO brothers. Um, and I read it probably 10 plus years ago. I remember I was on an airplane when I was reading it. And I had this aha that seems so obvious now, which was, oh, I get it. I'm a creative person. I happened to pick up a pen and become a copywriter. But that's not the limits of my creative expression. That's just one way I'm monetizing it or utilizing it. And that unlocked, like I literally gave myself permission to allow my creativity to express itself in every aspect of my life. And since that time, I've become really, really interested in cooking and baking and 
So if you are a marketing person, do not define yourself by whatever your business card says as like, I am this thing. You are many things. This thing is paying the bills, but really unlock and give yourself permission to be the fullest expression of your natural gifts in every arena of your life. And it's amazing how often we think, oh, I'm not good at that. I mean, I remember when we were remodeling our house and we had this spatial challenge in the kitchen and we were there with the architect and the builder and trying to figure it out. And I said, what if this was a two-sided closet in the back half? You know, I like had this idea and everyone just stood there in stunned silence. And the builder said, you just saved yourself a ton of money. And I never thought about myself as someone like I can barely park my car, you know, spatially, but I don't know. It was just, I gave myself permission to solve problems outside of my corporate arena. And I think that flexing those muscles, I mean, it's almost like being an athlete that plays multiple sports. It's very good for the agility of your mind. So I would encourage you to be into as many things that interest you legitimately as you can and to have fun with it. Uh, I think the future for marketing is going to be increasingly, we're going to help brands show up beyond what they're selling, but who they are and allow consumers to align with the right. And you'll have a hand in that is like helping brands tell their story in a potent way, helping them give back in ways that are meaningful. And they're going to cure some of the world's ailments. This is a really interesting time to be in marketing. I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. I think it's really, really good advice. So thank you so much. If people want to find you, where's the best place for them to go? Just, I guess, they can find your links if they Google you, but is there anywhere particular that you want to send them? Yeah, I mean, I have my own website separate from 3% and it's just catgordon.com, K-A-T-G-O-R-D-O-N.com. And I update it fairly recently with new interviews or thinking and you can sign up for a newsletter there. I'm also really active on Twitter. I think that's a great place to find me at Kat Gordon. I tweet compulsively and I am very responsive. So would love to hear from people about things they're thinking or just resources they want to share through me to our community. Thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you so much, Helen. You've just been listening to an episode of Mad Influence. This episode was recorded remotely with music by Joseph McDade. Thank you so much to everyone who's reached out with positive feedback recently. If you do get a chance, it would mean a lot if you can please subscribe, rate and review the podcast as this will really help it to grow.